We've all heard about people who design technology or design products, but design principles can also be used to craft solutions to climate change and to help activists better push for solutions on climate change and other pressing issues. With us today to talk about this is David Johnson. He is a lawyer, teacher, writer, who helps us do climate activism by design. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Human Survival Podcast, where we aim for world cooperation on critical threats to humanity. This show is offered by the Human Survival Project, a grassroots movement for citizens around the world to push for transformation of the United Nations. Our global threats need global cooperation because no nation alone can manage them. Here we have honest conversations about overcoming climate change, destruction of nature, pandemics, nuclear weapons, advancing technology, and other catastrophic threats. But this is not all doom and gloom. We talk solutions here. We can solve this mess humanity is in. We just need to be smart and do the work. To survive, we must see ourselves first as citizens of the human race. To thrive, we must protect what is beautiful about humanity. This is urgent, so let's start. In today's show, I'm sharing with you an interview that I recorded with Dave Johnson back in March of 2022. Unfortunately, this interview sat on hold for some months while I got immersed in a bunch of different things in life and in work that I had to do. So um, I want to let you know about this time lag because just in case you notice us not talking about anything that's happened in the world since March, um, but really the time lag doesn't matter much because the conversation is very timeless and we're considering the general um, situation in the world much more than you know up to the minute current events. And uh, it unleashes some really great ideas that we all should be considering as we deal with the climate. So I hope you enjoy it. Here you go. Hi, friends. Welcome. I'm Shelby Murtis. You have joined the Joy of Saving the Human Race or the Human Survival Podcast. We're not sure yet because we're changing the name right now and we're in the middle of that. Uh, the name is changing because I and a couple teammates are starting a new organization that will be a grassroots campaign to push for a stronger United Nations and get citizens around the world engaged in pushing for that. So we're going to have the organization and the show match their title and they'll be tightly related. Um, the reason we want a strong United Nations is that we have big global existential threats to humanity and global problems need stronger global systems to deal with them. So that's what we're up to there and I'll be keeping you posted as that work unfolds and uh, at some point soon we'll be doing an episode to just tell you about that organization and, and describe what we're up to. So um, among the existential threats that we deal with is climate change. As you know, it's a big thing and it's important. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, our guest today has worked a lot on this issue. With us to talk about it is David Johnson. Uh, David is a lawyer, teacher, and writer. Over the last 20 years, he has served as general counsel for Apple, Google, and other major tech companies in Silicon Valley. 
For the last decade, he has held teaching and research positions at Stanford Law School and at Stanford's Plattner Institute of Design. He has testified before the U.S. Congress and the California Assembly on technology policy. Dave's career and expertise blends law, design, negotiation, technology, and he is now using all those skills and insights to help on climate change. He is currently working on a book titled Climate Activism by Design, which applies design principles to citizen activism on climate change. Dave, welcome to the show. Uh, Shelby, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on moving forward with your own organization. Sounds like yeah. uh, a terrific endeavor. We hope so. The fingers are crossed. Yeah. And uh, it's got to get done. So somebody's got to try. So yeah. I, I agree with <laughs> yeah. you 100% there. Yeah. We don't always know if things will be successful, but it has to be tried. So there we go. Yep. Um, so as I gave that introduction, um, I kept it pretty brief because reading off a page is rarely exciting for people to listen to. <laughs> yeah. um, but is there anything about your background that you want to insert that I might have missed? Um, yeah, I'll add that I did my uh, law degree when I uh, was down in Miami, practiced law down there for 10 years before I came to Stanford to steer towards academia and my thesis uh, for my degree at Stanford was environmental uh, law, specifically international environmental law. And I was applying or trying to apply the ideas of software design, uh, specifically object-oriented modeling uh, as a fundamental approach to improving software design. Uh, Grady Booch being one of the most uh, important names behind that movement 20 plus years ago. And I found that there were some real interesting ap applications that I thought would work for uh, the, ap the, the use of uh, object-oriented modeling for designing systems, uh, designing uh, policy, uh, designing laws, um, and the systems that those laws implemented. Uh, so that's where my interest lay and uh, only thereafter did I start thinking about design thinking, uh, and that's about the time that the D school started. Uh, at the D school at Stanford is what we what we call the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. It's an institute, not really a school, but they call it the D school. Uh, and that's when I got to the place where I was really marrying design thinking with. Uh, uh, the ideas from object modeling and a little bit of fuzzy logic uh, to throw that in. Uh, so that's kind of the substantive end process background that I that I bring to the topic of climate. Nice. You know, before we um, dive fully into the climate change issue, let's talk about design and sure. make sure that people understand what that is. Because I sure. think a lot of people, they picture, you know, making a product or yep. making something look nice. Yep. But I know that you see it much more broadly than that. Can you just yep. say what design means to you? I can. I'll try and keep it brief. And the way you frame the question leads me to quote Steve Jobs right out of the gate. Uh, at one of his speeches, and I 
can't remember specifically which one it was. He was talking about uh, design when he was working at Apple. And uh, I'm paraphrasing now, but he said, most people think that design is how it looks. Uh, and we think differently. <laughs> Pardon the pun. We think that design is actually how it works. And I really like that succinct statement because design really is about how it works. Now, he was referring to products, uh, what I would loosely call machines, and that's all fair and good. Uh, if I take one big step back, the way I like to start the conversation about design is that humankind has been designing things since uh, you know, several thousands maybe tens of thousands of years BC uh, when human and humanids were literally chipping stones to create blades for cutting tools. And then those blades were refined to, you know, become arrowheads and spearheads and uh, spear tips. So we've been, you know, intuitive in the human <laughs> code is this, idea of being able to design things rudimentary at first for sure but ultimately as civilization progressed we uh, collectively started designing much more sophisticated things you could call them products we also designed services we designed governments constitutions are in the nature of the design blueprint for governments and so design is deeply deeply embedded in the human experience and the uh, evolution of civilizations. Now, that's design, which is quite a bit different from what we call nowadays design thinking. Design thinking was going on uh, across that long arc of design work, because design thinking is basically a subset of the work of design. It is not itself design, it is an approach, it's a mindset, it's a way to proceed. It's the how designers, good designers do good design work, but it's always been there. So I, the, the first myth I wanna crush is that design thinking is something brand new and cool and hip and there's a uh, sort of uh, elite learned a small group of people who have the sort of the magic uh, code to what design thinking is. We all have design thinking inherently, uh, but it's just recently, I would say in the last 30, 40 years, that that process of design thinking was teased out of design work and isolated and looked at sort of as a standalone thing, as a standalone process, and people started working on understanding it better, giving it some identity, giving it some labels, uh, as much as I try to eschew labels, uh, some nomenclature, uh, some categorization, et cetera, and some study. And this is all good. We're in the process, I think, uh, collectively of developing a canon of sorts for design thinking the canon already exists for design, but the two things are closely related, but very uh, different uh, 
when you compare one to the other. So design thinking is generally nested inside all of design work, but doing design thinking is not itself design. Interesting. I'm imagining that when you apply good design thinking, it allows you to create something that's more effective, but perhaps also have fewer unintended consequences. I mean, to, ha to view the entire picture in a structured way might help you see it all better and think it through better. I guess why maybe unintended consequences are on my mind is that with climate change especially, or other destruction of nature, it's all these piling on of unintended consequences. I mean, fossil fuels themselves, like they've horrendously damaged the planet, but it's not like anyone said, let's go destroy the earth. It was just an accident, you know? So we're like constantly trying to recover from yesterday's accidents. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that that, that loop exists. Um, many of your listeners will be familiar with the uh, now infamous uh, article or item, I would call it, in, um, I think it was the New York Times back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where the author actually uh, stated quite clearly the fear that burning coal would contribute to problems in the atmosphere. They didn't have the phrase greenhouse gas, but he was basically predicting the problems that would arise from increasing carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere. And yet, even even if the coal barons and the oil barons of the time uh, were aware of that fact, and who knows if they were, what's interesting is they would have proceeded under their model of uh, capitalism, they would have proceeded whether they knew or didn't know that it was going to damage the earth because their their mantra, their model, their objective is delivering value to shareholders in the near term and the medium term. And where the economics of digging and burning coal or drilling for gas and oil allow for the uh, external costs to be dumped on the commons, for the costs to be uh, offloaded uh, from their balance sheet onto the global balance sheet of, that is nature, I have a strong suspicion that they all knew that that's what they were doing, but their economic model uh, supported doing it. Nobody made them pay for the cost. Yeah, that's just good business. That in their mind, some. from that perspective, that's good business. And as long as people and the planet is quote unquote willing to allow, uh, let's go fast forward, companies like uh, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola to continue to churn out plastic, single-use plastic bottles made primarily from virgin plastics from petroleum, churn out you know, trillions of bottles and dump them basically for zero cost to the corporation, dump them everywhere on the planet. And I've seen them with my own eyes on the beaches of Indonesia where it's a catastrophe 
uh, how much plastic is kicking around the oceans uh, in and around Southeast Asia, they they haven't had to pay dime one to this day, really, for the cost that they're imposing on the rest of us and uh, everything that swims in the sea, because those plastics do degrade down to microplastics and they start uh, killing animals and some plants. Yeah. So as we approach climate change, and I would argue that's intertwined with other destruction of nature, um, what's our diagnosis here? I mean, if we're going to be good designers, I assume that starts with really identifying the problem or identifying the goal. Amid this complexity, um, what do you think we need to be focused on? What's most urgent to fix within that? And I understand you know, the broadness of that question. Yeah. No, no, that's fair. And it's a good question. And it's, I pause because it's one that I haven't actually heard in quite that specific way, which is prioritize the uh, importance or urgency of the many, many systems, social systems and physical systems that, like you say, are intertwined uh, with respect to, let's call it environmental degradation and uh, make sure that climate change as we understand it is included under the heading of environmental degradation more generally. And this is, this is something that I will talk about in the book, and I haven't landed entirely on my answer for this yet. But my mind goes to something that Grady Booch, who I referred to earlier as the one of the, I would say, the godfather of object-oriented modeling, one of his go-to sayings was, uh, you model the problem that you're trying to solve with software, and you do a thorough model long before you start writing any code. The One of the overarching theories was to postpone writing code uh, or quote-unquote law in uh, as much as possible until your model was really thoroughly done. And he liked to talk about what he called the 360-degree holistic gestalt view of the problem. And that means that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, gestalt is maybe an overused phrase from the 60s, but it still has some meaning for me. And the idea here, to go back to your question, is there's so many systems and they're so intertwined I'm not certain that it's fair to say that any one system is a higher priority. I think the priority is doing the work, the mental work, the investigational work to tighten up our understanding of how these systems interact and finding in those interactions the most uh, profound, profound's not the right word, looking for the most uh, effective levers where we can make change happen in those systems um, and then focus on those. So there may be a particular thing that we can do that uh, might have uh, 
immediate impact on perhaps four or five uh, environmental degradation problems. So let's look at the, the plastics issue uh, just as an easy example. And this does not, is not to say it's an easy solution, but is it, it kind of fairly straightforward example. Um, we know that we can make plastics from biodegradable material certain biodegradable materials, plant-based, that uh, are not harmful to the environment. If we required all plastics, such as single-use or other plastics that, might, that are making their way into the environment and ultimately into both the Pacific gyre and the uh, stomachs of sea turtles, for example, and we made the use of virgin plastic or even the use of recycled plastic illegal and we simply required bioplastics to be the future uh, that moving that one lever is going to impact several systems it's going to impact uh, oil to a degree it's going to impact believe it or not recycling to a degree it's going to impact the need for more for the the creation the industry that is bioplastics uh, it will impact uh, consumer prices because it will be more expensive to to do it the reason they use virgin uh, plastics for those bottles is because it's cheapest it's also the most expensive for the environment but it's cheapest for the corporation and that's where part of the rub is so uh, for my money, trying to drill down to these potent levers that may be hidden uh, at first glance, where we can make a relatively small control move that can have enormous consequences in several systems, to me, that would, is where I would put the highest priority. I could not list where, where, what those levers are right now today, um, and I'm hopeful that some scientists have started looking at i'm confident that they have at looking at some of these levers and that we can once we locate them we can translate that science over to policy and this is where it gets interesting transferring that science over to policy is going to require activism because government's not going to do it on their own we've we just have to accept that as a fact you just look at the state of U.S. federal government now, uh, even at today's hearing for a highly qualified Supreme Court justice, and you'll realize these people, you know, couldn't go complete a shopping list collaboratively and leave uh, the grocery store with the, the right stuff in the bags, much less, you know, <laughs> Write, write, write a law that uh, implements good policy. So activists are going to have to get involved to make them do that. And those laws are going to have to make corporations do things differently to uh, avoid the damage, the avoid, uh, prevent further environmental degradation. Mm hmm yeah, I agree with you. I think that um, governments will be insanely important in the coming years, and that most of them are currently ill-equipped 
for the time of crisis we're entering. And so to some extent, you know, design principles or whatever thinking or activism has to somewhat focus on our government systems and making them work better so that they're capable of solving these problems that need solving. To, in my conclusion, and this is just my personal opinion, I, I don't think I could write a paper and summon the evidence because a lot of the evidence is unavailable in the public domain. My conclusion is the reason we have people in government now who are incapable or incompetent with respect to making good law and policy, not all of them, but a significant number and probably a majority, is because the people who are getting elected are getting elected by big money that is coming from corporations that want laws that favor their bottom line. And they are putting sycophants in office, and those sycophants are not going to do anything. They, number one, they're, they're not the world's brightest people, although I'm astonished, to be honest, to see how many well-educated uh, people there are who have gone to the dark side. But uh, you can be well-educated and be a very weak uh, person lacking in character. And I think that that's where we ended up. Uh, so one of the systems that we need to get active about, and people are definitely getting active about because it's now so apparent, is our election systems that will accurately reflect uh, the vote of the people. Um, and then there's the information systems that will hopefully accurately provide the information to the voter and not distribute propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation like some of the outlets are now. These systems are all intertwined and it's going to be very difficult uh, to, you know, uh, undo the Gordian knot that we find ourselves uh, confronted with. But like you said at the top, I mean, I, I really mean it. And it, it's a principle of design thinking is uh, you have to try. We, you have to do, just do, uh, just try. Um, failure is better than inaction. And failure teaches you something uh, for the next path. That's one of the things that I think design, think, design thinking brings to the table right now for activists um, because of the urgency of all of these problems is to experiment and iterate rapidly. So we might make something that doesn't work. We might do something that doesn't work. Well, from that we learn what doesn't work, you're on the pathway towards another experiment that has a better chance of working, and then you finally stumble across by accident or by design something that does work, and then you amplify that and let it, uh, and you spread it, you let it go viral, uh, distribute the knowledge of what, what works. Uh, and so for activism, I think there are some very fundamental design thinking principles that can be uh, implemented that that will increase the power, increase the efficacy, if you will, of uh, activist groups. Because right now I fear that activist groups 
are operating a little bit too independently in an effort to, you know, get their heads above water in the public discourse, which is an admirable objective, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, we have to work on the, we have to understand we're on the same team. And as, as you know, it's kind of like the Nash problem. If we're competing against one another, we're preventing all of us from, from going forward. Uh, so we have to figure out a way for NGOs, uh, uh, particularly activist NGOs, to not interfere with one another so that all of the, the overall social progress is optimized. I hear that. Um, part of my career, well, a large part has been public policy work. I used to deal with uh, affordable housing and homelessness issues, working for a nonprofit advocacy organization. And it baffled me how some of the most intense fights were among people who were on the same side. Like all of us trying to push the same issue, were fighting with each other. And I'd be like, hey, come on, guys, we're supposed to save the fight for them our opponents, and instead we're fighting with each other. And, and it's um, a pretty baffling dynamic. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I teach negotiation at uh, the law school at Stanford and have for 10, 12 or more years. And I very quickly came to understand the importance of dedicating a couple of modules of the course to uh, intra-team, intra-group, intra-organizational negotiation. So a lot of complex transactional negotiation has teams negotiating opposite one another. But the more difficult problem, in fact, the more difficult negotiation is within the teams. And this, can, this holds true, I think, at the government level uh, with governments negotiating opposite one another because the individuals on the same team still have their own personal agendas. And this is part of, we were talking off camera before we started, this is part of one of my criticisms of where we've uh, arrived as Americans when you couple the constitutional right of, individual, of, of the individual sort of over the community you, uh, we've, we've absolutely uh, codified that right. You layer on capitalism and private property, and we get to a place where the individual really is, we are all taught, we are all taught that the individual is a very important entity in American life, but perhaps we've overtaught that at the expense of individuals' understanding of their role in community, how, what, what is their part of a larger whole. And so I think that translates into particularly for-profit business. And I've lived in the for-profit business world for 30 years plus, and I, I've seen it over and over and over again, where people are more interested in advancing their career inside the company or even with eyes to go outside the company than they are with advancing the interests of the organization that they work for that pays their salary um, at the cost sometimes of other members of their team. And this is where you where there's this there's this sort of built-in conflict that you have to solve when you're negotiating with a team. 
against another team. So likewise, I think we just have to scale that idea up when we get to environmental org, uh, NGOs or other uh, groups that are trying to attack and solve the same problem. And yeah, they might be coming at it from a different angle, and that's fine, but we can't let those, those swords cross and spend energy fighting amongst ourselves because that energy is then lost against the, the primary objective. And I hate to say it, but it's well understood in politics in the US that the Republican Party has been, I would say up until about four or five years ago, has been very, very adept at keeping all of their membership in line, on message, highly aligned, even if loosely coupled. And the Democrats, by dint of there being an organization that has a big tent for many different viewpoints, has found itself mired or wrapped around the axle with internecine fighting that doesn't move the Democratic agenda forward as strongly as the Republican agenda is, has moved forward. And now, candidly, they are, they are uh, they're in second place in the race. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it strikes me that, um, I mean, we all just need to do better activism. We all need to do better citizenship and, and democracy luckily gives us the tools to do that. I mean, our systems are not, um, maybe as good as we would want them to be. But part of the problem is that citizens have not fully been citizens. So in our culture and some others, there's been this overemphasis on individual rights and freedoms, which are great. I love my freedoms. I wouldn't want to trade them. But there's been not an emphasis on the participatory parts of democracy. So a lot of people frame democracy as just like, I'm free and I get to have cool things rather than I'm a citizen and it's my job to participate and guide my government and what it does. And that part, um, I mean, there's people who care, there's people who do things, but yet I think you're right. You said a moment ago that th these things aren't gonna change unless citizenship is done differently and activists <laughs> approach it differently. Yeah, uh, you know, you put me, this is a great comment, you put me in mind of Emma's, Emma Lazarus from, uh, I think her poem, Colossus. Uh, she is the one who wrote the inscription or wrote the poem that's inscribed on Statue of Liberty. I'm not sure this phrase that I'm about to say is even on the statue, I'm not sure. But she is famous for this saying, uh, until all of us is free, none of us is free. And I think she used the singular. It's kind of weird, but uh, until all of maybe it's until all of us are free, none of us is free. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, which is we all individually enjoy our freedoms, and to you know, and sometimes to the extreme, we are very vocal about our freedoms, my freedoms. I love my freedoms. I don't want anybody to take them away. But get you know, here's the thing. Guess what? That's not enough. Those freedoms come from the collective will of all of the people in a democratic society, all of the people. 
And so unless we're out there actively promoting the freedom of others who might not have quite the feeling of full freedom, uh, underrepresented people, people who are in the lower socioeconomic bracket, the, the, the devastated middle class over the last 30 years, uh, uh, lacking in the kinds of freedoms that you and I might uh, lay claim to and cherish until all of us are truly enjoying the freedoms that the Constitution guarantees, which includes, by the way, the right to due process and justice, which a very significant percentage of our society does not have the full right to uh, justice in our country. Until all of us have that, then none of us is really free. In other words, our freedoms are fragile. They're brittle. They can they can be taken away rapidly unless the whole of democracy protects them on behalf of one another. So this is where I think as much emphasis as there is on the individual in the United States uh, code writ large, we still, and perhaps for that reason, to maintain that set of freedoms, we still have a deep obligation to work hard to make sure everybody has those freedoms because otherwise ours are uh, increasingly at risk. And the framing of this problem is, pardon my phrase, bass backwards. The people who are out there claiming their freedoms right now say that the other person is trying to take my freedoms. Well, no, the other person isn't trying to take your freedoms. The other person doesn't have the freedoms that you, that you have. They're trying to get their own freedoms equivalent to yours. So your freedom isn't improved by somebody else having less freedom. Your freedom is damaged by somebody else having less uh, access to those freedoms or justice. We have to get everybody to the same level of justice and freedoms so that we all have robust and solid rights to freedom and justice. Because the more we blame the other guy and stay in our individual mode and uh, don't participate in a democratic community, the more we put our own freedoms at risk of overall collapse from authoritarian, authoritarian government or oligarchical influence. Sorry for the long diatribe, but this is one I feel really strongly about, obviously. Yeah, yeah. no, it's good. You know, this um, sort of overemphasis on individualism that we're talking about, um, I think it leads a lot of people to not see themselves as part of an integrated society or part of a world or part of the human race. You know, so I think people tend, well, not everybody, but a lot of people tend to just focus on themselves as the unit of authority. <laughs> you know, am I getting what I want or not? Instead of thinking what's best for everybody. And so it's led me with my work to try to just have people understand the interconnected nature of our complex life. Because I think, it, you know, a lot of these issues have been 
approached in a moralizing sort of way, like trying to get people to act nice or act good or act generous. But I'm just starting with connection. Like, hey, American, do you understand that the life situation of a poor person in another country directly affects you? Most people don't. <laughs> you know, they just have, they need to fully understand the interconnections and how it even impacts their own lives before they're going to really embrace these, you know, hopefully international, you know, solutions that are needed. Yeah, I, I fear that uh, perhaps the American citizenry may be uh, one of the last to join a global movement of activism uh, for reasons we're discussing. Uh, and if that's the case, so be it. Uh, I see it as a global movement and I, I, you know, there is real value in traveling the world. I mean, that is so obvious it, it barely warrants mention, but, um, there is real value in traveling the world and seeing firsthand how other people live, uh, and speaking with these people and understanding their worldviews. Um, and the troubles that face them and americans have it well off have been well off enough as a community writ large as a, as a population that i think activism is less likely from americans you know for the last five years you see constant calls for people to take to the streets at the next major affront that comes out of Washington, D.C. We need to take to the streets. We need to get boots on the ground. And every now and then you'll get a little bit of reaction, but nothing significant, nothing like the uh, March on Washington uh, in 1964. Uh, those sorts of things Americans have, myself included, uh, have become blasé about or worse. And so I think for a global movement to succeed, it's going to need to begin elsewhere. There, it's, not, it's not, in my view, it's not a coincidence that one of the leading voices on climate change is a teenage uh, Swedish young woman named Greta. Uh, that wasn't ever gonna happen in America. But now it is starting to happen in America because Greta set an example. And I think we may in America have to be seeing more and more activity from other nations around the world in order to spark a movement or participation in the movement uh, on the ground in the US. Um, I'm gonna try with my book and otherwise to influence Americans uh, to become more active uh, more quickly, but I'm not going to count on it. I, I think uh, Europe and Asia, uh, Africa and South America are going to be the places where we're going to start seeing more of this. A, a good example is the Arab Spring. Americans were <laughs> kind of shocked with our, the Arab Spring uh, with something on the order of 11 separate nations having their governments reconstituted as a result of you know, six to eight months of hardcore activism in the streets by citizens 
who had had enough with their corrupt government. And their conditions were worse than the average Americans. That, that's understandable and that makes sense. But still, what we saw there, or the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, uh, back, I think it was in about 2014, these sorts of things, to me, are exemplars of how it's done. And what I'm interested in doing is, to the extent that I can, is teaching and preaching the things that I know from design, from negotiation, from law, that can help people feel more confident and in, in becoming activists and also find collaborators in their activism to give them a sense of power. I think one of the things I know, one of the things that is uh, on the mind of every individual in the world who thinks about climate change and despairs about climate change is an overwhelming sense of powerlessness because it's such a huge issue. It's such a huge problem. It's existential. And every one of us, myself included, say, what can I do alone that's going to make a difference? Well, the truth is almost nothing that I do as an individual, however much I recycle, however much I change my diet, however much I walk or bike instead of use my car, et cetera, whether it's electric or gas, it's still contributing until we're on purely sustainable uh, sources of, of electricity. Even doing all of those things isn't going to make a dent. It's a drop in the ocean. The way that we have to deal with climate is collectively. And the, the way to get people from a position of powerlessness, a sense of powerlessness, to a sense of power, to me, is the fundamental first move. And the way we get them, I think, to a sense of power is to get them together with like-minded others where they can work together on, and do things that they might not be able to or be willing to try to do on their own. And if we do that at scale and we can get those people to network, then I think we're on to the uh, catalysis, catalyzing a movement of activists uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to make that happen, would you foresee the creation of a new organization or some structure to drive this? Or how do we how do we make that happen? It's a good question, and I don't necessarily have the right answer to that. The answer that I am operating with, the model that I'm operating with, comes from systems theory, and that is that I think it has to be an emergent property of the system of humanity. It, in other words, we, I don't think any external entity can necessarily make it happen. We need to create the conditions to allow it to happen. Uh, again, Arab Spring was exactly that. Nobody made Arab, Arab Spring happen. Uh, Mohammed Boziz in Tunisia uh, was the spark. His activism was the spark that lit it, but it was an entirely 
individual action that had if, that I'm sure he had no intention of or expectation that Arab Spring, that which was Arab, Arab Spring, would fall on the heels of his protest to his local government in Tunisia. But that's what happened. It was literally an emergent property of the social system that was his town and region in Tunisia, and then it spread. It went viral, to use the term. It went viral, and people of like mind were motivated, activated to put their feet in the streets. And these are the sort of things that need to happen, and people and, and there's no way to predict what which activist act by an individual or by a group is actually going to find its way to triggering uh, a larger movement. Um, you know, uh, uh, an example that I've looked at, uh, I found really interesting. We are all familiar with Rosa Parks uh, back in the 60s in the Birmingham, uh, I'm sorry, the Montgomery bus boycott that, uh, that arose from her protest not to move on the bus. But what I discovered that was really interesting is that she credited Mrs. Uh, Emmett Till, Emmett Till's mother. And here's why. Emmett Till was, as we know, uh, murdered, arguably tortured and murdered in Mississippi probably nine to 12 months prior to Rosa Parks' event. And he was brutalized, thrown in the Tallahatchie River. His body was partially decomposed. And this is a tough story. His mother, Emmett, was from Chicago. He was a northern kid. And his mother went down, got his body, and insisted on having an open casket funeral in Chicago because she wanted everybody to see the the damage, the effects, the direct effects of Jim Crow down in the South, in Mississippi. And people around Chicago uh, lined up to view the open casket. And she invited the uh, photographer from the brand new magazine called Jet that had just opened within a year prior um, to come photograph uh, Emmett's body in the coffin. And he did so, and he took the photographs. And the editors chose to run them as, as they were, stark and vivid. They didn't pixelate. They didn't hide them. They didn't shrink them, et cetera. They went into Jet Magazine and got published. And that's when the world saw Emmett Till's body for what it was. Well, guess what? Rosa Parks said herself after she uh, protested uh, back in Montgomery, she said, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I've been told to move on the bus for many, many, many years in Montgomery, and I always did it. And somebody asked, well, how did you get the courage to do it this time? She goes, I remember seeing Emmett Till's picture. She credited the publication of the picture, basically Emmett's mother, uh, having been the activist who did it, with having the courage on that day 
to refuse and get arrested. And that to me is a really good example of how one person's activist act, action may be seem small and inconsequential. But to use your phrase from earlier, there were really unintended consequences. There's no way Emmett Till's mother was going to be capable of predicting that her actions were going to cause Rosa Parks to do what she did. And then uh, the bus boycott led in part by the, the new pastor, Martin King, down in Montgomery was going to turn into a movement, turn into the movement that it became. This is how it works. And how do you make it happen? I would argue we have to create the conditions to allow it to happen. So say we get um, citizens active in the way that we need to make change happen. Um, what are what are some ways that we can apply design thinking to changing these systems that we live within? I mean, there's like just the physical consumption patterns. There's like, I can't even recycle some things if I want, you know, there's limited what I could do, or I have to drive to work and I can't afford an electric vehicle. I got to burn gas. You know, we're, we're all embedded in these economic systems just getting our lives done how can we go about designing these things better yeah I or at would least say what's it, the thinking that we should approach with it's not a direct line in my view from design thinking to uh making electric cars less expensive or, uh, or even affordable or for that matter getting fossil fuels out of the business of generating the electricity that those electric cars need because as much as I love electric cars, I don't have one yet, but uh, as much as I love electric cars, still have to remember, it's just the, we're, we're just replacing the tailpipe with the smokestack so long as we're continuing to burn fossil fuels to generate that electricity uh, for, the, for those cars. But uh, the way I see design thinking having its best application here is twofold. The primary one is giving people a sense of how the designer mindset and the, the work of designers, including the models that I've described a little bit, um, can be applied to moving from a position of individual powerlessness to a position of uh, group empowerment. So find a co-founder for lack of a better phrase it's a really interesting phenomenon here in silicon valley and elsewhere i'm sure that almost all startups are co-founded they're not uh spun up and begun by individuals in fact at the business school they steer students who want to do startup companies towards having a co-founder there's a lot of benefits to doing that and so i like the model of having individuals find ways to locate like-minded people, uh, find a co-founder and work on a very small uh, environmental problem. Let's say two high school students who decide as a project, they're gonna go to the local grocery store and try and get them to make one change. Uh, our local grocery store is now 
uh, taking returns on milk bottles. You remember back way back in the days when you would actually return glass milk bottles. Well, this this is coming back, and uh, that's a small but significant but but important uh, first step. Well, a couple of high school students can do that without too much trouble. Uh, you know, approach the the store manager, figure out you know, how to make it happen, encourage them, write some articles in the newspaper, et cetera. And you might just find that you can influence one store. Well, if you can influence one store, then maybe you can influence several stores. Same thing holds true, I suppose, with plastic bags or any other sort of environmental uh, issue from that, that kind of an outlet or any sort of business for that matter. But for me, I think the big step is getting people working together and then from there sharing and building a network whether it's in the same town in the same school in the same town or perhaps in a different town social media is going to be a very important piece of this and the younger generation is going to be a critical piece of this but i am willing to bet that a a uh, an organic growth of sharing amongst small teams uh, doing environmental projects. And they may be doing it under the aegis of an NGO like Sunrise Movement. That's fine. That's okay. That's a way to get people together and to get them feeling empowered. Uh, and then slowly and steadily developing uh, enough voice, enough uh, sort of critical mass to then uh, start approaching corporate offices, corporate headquarters for let's say, for lack of a better choice, Safeway or Walmart and start pushing for uh, change, policy changes at, the, at a higher level with sometimes, if necessary, the threat and the ability to boycott. Because once you get to a certain point of numbers, and you have have developed a voice that is more than just one individual writing a letter, but it's a team of individuals uh, who have a network and and people behind them. Then corporations start to pay attention. We know pretty clearly the things that that matter to corporations, and one of them is their brand, and the other is their profits. And if we can design targeted action against those two. Uh, factors, those two levers, boycott being risk to profit and publicity being risk to brand, then things can start to, changes can be, can start to be made. You know, I was really encouraged as much as I hate to bring this subject up with the, the uh, horror that is the war in Ukraine. I was really encouraged to see how many corporations, businesses, including American businesses, but businesses around the world who voluntarily chose to withdraw from participating in Russian economy. They made a, a capitalist calculation that protecting their brand by making a statement against Russian aggression was more important than whatever the nominal profits they might continue to make by staying in business in Russia. So you've got brand and profit now uh, are two really powerful levers. And I think that young people in particular can organize and threaten or execute boycotts 
you see it happen uh, on Twitter all the time. And companies are, here's a tip, companies are surprisingly more responsive to customer service if you, if you go on Twitter and complain in a tweet and tag the company customer service rep than if you ever, ever get by going online into a chat box or going on the telephone to try and talk to a company through the more normal channels. And the only reason, the obvious reason, thank you, Jack Dorsey, the obvious reason is that they are terribly afraid of your complaint being seen by tens of thousands and go going viral to hundreds of thousands of users who see this complaint about Delta Airlines or United Airlines or public supermarkets or whatever. The power of social media and the power of, of the brand damage will motivate corporations as much or in the case of Russia more so than the dollar. And so I, I forgot where, I'm sorry, I forgot the prompt of your question on this, but uh, my, my, uh, my view is that by teaching some of the fundamental things that we teach in design thinking classes, uh, and I can tick off a few of them, which is uh, experimenting rapidly, prototyping, uh, finding out what the people, the relevant people are, the stakeholders in your problem domain really want uh, to happen, and uh, communicating with real deliberateness to the right people in the right way, um, and continuing to uh, maintain momentum, even if you have a series of failures, those sorts of things can really, I think, motivate uh, and uh, encourage young people to uh, take on small but uh, important activist steps. And that's from there, the hope is, and it is a hope, I, I grant you, because we can't force this to happen. The hope is that there will be the natural development of, actives, of, of systems and subsystems of activists, and it will turn into a movement. And once it turns into a movement, as we remember from the 60s, it uh, gains its own energy, it gains its own voice, but at the same time, it then gains its power. And then corporations and governments have to pay attention once they have that power, the power of the collective. And yes, I really believe social media is going to play an important part in this, just like it did in the Arab Spring. Yeah, I agree, I agree with you. And as we're talking about this, I'm feeling um, sort of optimistic at the moment <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, the future is not guaranteed, we know, but the... We have these new digital tools for communication that allow us to do better activism than previous times in history. Mm -hmm. And so with this added visibility that activists can have to promote what they're doing, it serves so many purposes. So it allows activists to find each other and mm -hmm. network and form alliances but mm -hmm. it also helps this sort of psychological or sociological thing of, of reaching a certain tipping point or yep. momentum where 
a lot of people I think are reticent to really get involved in a cause if they don't feel like their time and effort will result in something. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, I know it's a good cause, but it's not going to work, so why should I bother? Yeah. But if you have enough visibility by enough people, then yeah. it it has this snowball effect or this momentum yeah. where people see that their local efforts as an individual or a small group is connected with lots of people doing a lot of things. And, and that yeah. gives great hope and motivation for, for people. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm going to draw a comparison to a recent movement. I think one of the most important things is the individual has to feel some personal resonance or investment in the problem. And the movement I want to mention is hashtag Me Too. The Me Too movement came out of nowhere, or it appeared to come out of nowhere. I'm sure there is ample amount of work leading up to it sort of going viral, for lack of a better phrase. And several events coalesced including the accusations and ultimate arrest of Harvey Weinstein. But the Me Too movement, I think, arose and was successful because so many people had had some similar assault, sexual assault experience, most of them women, but not all of them. And so it, it touched people in a way that, that was very personal and you can't replicate that necessarily with climate change because it's a different thing. But if there is a way to bridge, to, to get the individual to jump that, that uh, creek, for lack of a better phrase, just that make that little leap, that little hop of faith. I might even use that in the book that I think about it. It's not even a leap of faith. It's just a hop of faith that, okay, so uh, I, I'm not personally affected by climate change quite yet in the way that uh, I was as a result of being sexually assaulted, I'm still willing to, to step up and declare my membership in this movement. And once the individual makes that internal commitment, throws that switch, and that's why I think doing it collaboratively and starting with a co-founder helps people make that hop then the thing can really generate its own energy. And, uh, you know, I want to make sure I get this idea in there under the heading of optimism. You know, all my years in not just Silicon Valley, but in the practice of law generally, but certainly inside companies in the Valley, it is apparent to me that corporations, big corporations, particularly the ones that have the power to do really material uh, things with respect to environmental degradation. Our corporations are surprisingly more fragile, brittle, and perhaps even weak than the public actually believes because they're, they're sort of like the inverted pyramid in which all of the weight of the corporation is pivots on a very small pivot point, which is 
if they're a public company, shareholder stock price increase, shareholder value increase, whether they're public or private, revenues, and ultimately profits. That's the, the end all and be all. And brand is a subset of that overall um, pivot point. And anything that can disrupt the path of a corporation towards that quarterly objective is going to be something that is taken very, very seriously. And it doesn't take a whole lot to get the attention of the C-suite of any major corporation, whether it's Coca-Cola or otherwise, if they believe that a group of people or organizations working together can effect damage on the brand or on the revenue. But I think that's the only way to penetrate the, to, to cross the moat, scale the walls and get into the operational decision-making at a big corporation that's doing environmental damage. The other way is through uh, lawmaking from governments, but right now governments are generally controlled by those corporations. So the approach I think to government is similarly for activists to create vulnerabilities in the elected officials belief that they can continue to, re to get reelected. That's the long and short of it. Um, but governments are brittle, uh, as we saw with Arab Spring, once enough people oppose the, their own government, because governments draw their power from pure dictatorship all the way down to pure democracy, all governments draw their power from the people that they purport to uh, govern. And so it's not just in democracies, but it, uh, as Arab Spring showed us, it can, it can the, the power of the people can successfully topple uh, a dictator like uh, Libya did. Uh, so it's all about moving the individual into some sort of team collaborative relationship that allows them to start to feel some power, however small it might be, in their actions as, as well have some personal investment and resonance in those actions. And then give them, build a, a model for them to network, scale, and uh, make their voice be heard. Yeah. What you're reminding me of is this interview I heard recently. I think it was interviewing Cass Sunstein. And if I can find it, I'll add a link in the show notes. But basically, he's done research to the effect that social change can sometimes happen rapidly, even with yeah. big problems. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't, but the Me Too movement is an example. The Arab Spring is an example where there can be an underlying frustration among large numbers of the population, but it's sort of psychologically underground because mm -hmm. it's not safe to speak up or it's mm -hmm. not cool to speak up or accepted mm -hmm. or, or, you know, 
But then once somebody else stands up and is vocal, then I might be more likely to follow. Because it's like, oh, okay, well, he or she is speaking up, and that's kind of working, and they didn't get their head cut off, they didn't get arrested, they didn't get shamed, like, oh, that worked out okay, maybe I can speak up too. And so once enough people reach that tipping point of speaking up, then it sort of sweeps through the population, and everybody else comes out and, and is honest about their concerns. Yeah. And that's when politics changes. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's no secret that going to today's current, most current problem of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, I think the strategy is, aside from military, to inform enough of the Russian population uh, including but not limited to the inner circle of oligarchs who are basically the shield between Putin and his disaffected population. Uh, I think the hope is that that uprising, if you will, of the population is what will ultimately push the inner circle to a tipping point where they find a way to uh how shall i say change government Mm -hmm. yeah these types of psychological dynamics or communication dynamics i think are largely done on the fly intuitively maybe organically it just sort of happens but it strikes me that with the design principles that you were preaching it could allow us to be more intentional about these things, to really orchestrate something to happen by helping individuals connect and communicate in the right way or help organizations or businesses or politicians help them come together in the right ways. Yeah. Um, There is a... I'll stop short of calling it a tradition, but there's definitely a trend in the teaching of design thinking towards what we call mapping uh, and uh, the varieties of mapping techniques that we use to uh, teach and implement uh, design thinking skills. Uh, Again, whether it's for a physical product or a non-physical system or result. And in a nutshell, I would say what I'm interested in, in, in trying to do with my book and my message is develop a map uh, informed by design thinking, but not necessarily trying to teach design thinking to the reader, but informed by design thinking uh, in a way that creates a map that people can follow uh without too much difficulty meaning you know the first uh mile or two of the journey is not straight up the face of the mountain you know it's just a stroll down a trail at first and get them on the on the road moving um and hopefully intersecting with other people on a similar trail and teaming up 
and hiking together, uh, uh, following a map that then takes them to a place of their own design, of their own discovery, of their own, and then they take it from there. Because people, once they're motivated and 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 going, uh, they have a pretty good sense of what they want to do, and they just need to understand some of the tools, for lack of the better phrase, tools of the trade. Uh, I'll I'll sort of close with one of them that I will include in the book that I learned from practicing law a long time ago, which is if you want to get the attention of a public company in the United States. You go to the SEC, Security and Exchange Commission, public website, and you look up the filings, usually the annual report, the quarterly report and annual reports of any public company uh, at work today in the U.S. And you'll see, as a result of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, probably 20 years ago now, that every one of those filings uh, in the delivery of the information about the company, the finances, their explanation of how they do business, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the representations they make about the current state of the business and the future state of the business are all signed by the CEO and the CFO under penalty of perjury. So if you have an issue with a public company uh, as an activist group, so let's say XR, uh, rebellion or Sunrise Movement wants to take on Coca-Cola with respect to plastics, first thing I would say is go read their SEC filings and their annual report for the last three, four, five years and see what, if anything, they say about commitments to uh, reducing single-use plastics or the amount of uh, virgin plastic made from petroleum that they are using. Uh, and you will discover facts that are uh, testified to basically under penalty of perjury by the CEO and CFO. And you develop those facts into an argument and you take that argument to Coca-Cola and say, five years ago, your CEO signed under oath this pledge about making this change, both Pep, Coke, as an aside, both Coke and Pepsi, I think, have pledged to eliminating uh, single-use plastics or non-biodegradable plastics by the year 2030. I could be wrong about that, but I, I, as I recall, they've both made significant pledges. And uh, the latest I've read, not in their SEC filing, but the latest I've read is there may be 10% of the way according to their own paperwork, 10% of the way to meeting that pledge. They are moving very slowly and they're at a pace that they will never hit that pledge. But anyway, back to the SEC filing, this is a sort of tool that you can use as an activist because it will scare the bejesus out of whomever you're talking to uh, in the sustainability department or the PR department at Coca-Cola or Pepsi Apologies for picking on just those two companies. There's, there's hundreds of them that are vulnerable. Uh, by pointing out that they've made these pledges and, and those pledges were made under penalty of perjury. And this is where the threat to go to the press, uh, perhaps even the threat to file a lawsuit with a pro bono, the pro bono law, uh, team from a major law firm uh, 
And the threat to initiate a boycott along with that publicity will really get the attention. Uh, it used to be you needed Michael Moore and a camera to walk on the front, up the front steps and confront the security guard at GM or whichever company he was taking on. That was pre-social media. It's, and it, it's useful to watch those movies and see what he does. But now with social media uh, and the ability to spin up a network and develop a voice and find the pieces of information that are indisputable, that, that doesn't turn into a he said, we said, uh, those sorts of tools of the trade uh, need to be included in this, this map, this toolkit that uh, hopefully I can, I can get out in the hands of folks who are motivated uh, to commit a portion, a small portion of their life to actually being active uh, instead of passive in uh, making a contribution, however, uh, you know, humble, making a contribution to join a movement that will ultimately become a global movement and will ultimately confront governments and corporations for their roles in basically using Earth as their garbage dump. Well, hell yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm signed <laughs> up. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed these um, ideas that you've been sharing. I think it's great stuff. I think the world needs what you're offering. So thank you so much for coming on to share all this with us. And thank you, listeners, for uh, joining us. In the show notes, I'll link you to um, David's fine work. You can check out his website and such and learn more about what he's up to. And until next time, let's just try to be the best people we can be. Take care. Hey, wait, before you go, I need your help. It's small, but really important. Simply listening to this show is great. But doing things and taking action is way more powerful. This is not just a podcast. This show is the voice of a very ambitious grassroots organization, the Human Survival Project. We must transform the United Nations so it's strong enough to manage our global catastrophic threats. Making change happen on this ambitious scale is only possible when people participate and work together. So please, like and subscribe to this show, or leave a comment. You know how this works. With likes and subscribes and comments, you're telling the computer algorithms that you care about this show. So the algorithms will then recommend this show to other people. This is how we grow and reach a bigger audience. And this growth is really important for a global grassroots movement trying to improve how the world operates. We can't do this alone. We need you. Beyond liking and subscribing, here are three other ways you can help. One, share this show with a friend, person to person. A growing audience powers this cause. Two, come to our website, www.thehumansurvivalproject.org. Three, at the website, sign up for our email newsletter and keep up with our progress. I promise you'll like what you see, and it'll help you talk to your friends about what must be done to protect humanity.
thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for listening, for helping us grow, and for speaking about these important issues with everyone you know. Have an outstanding day. I'll talk to you soon.